be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55% interest in the Advanced Stage Buck Reef Gold Mine Development Project, which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. And we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest on the Ellis Martin Report. In this particular breaking news interview, Jim Sinclair lays down not just a scenario, but a reality existing right now, where the likes of the U.S. Treasury and the federal government have pulled the nuclear economic trigger on India and Japan regarding Iran, while in reality inflicting the most damage on ourselves vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar. Jim, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, and I hope it benefit too the listeners. Let's talk about the price of gold. Do you think that the recent suppression in the market was influenced by remarks made by the Fed? Well, let's say the timing was serendipitous. Not a great believer in luck and generally good fortune. I believe you make your luck and good fortune. The day that the market took that break was timed perfectly to the credit event now deemed default in Greece. One of the things a gold market can do is to bring attention to developments. For instance, if the gold market at that time was to have moved up through the 725 area where it was trading slightly below. It would have called more attention than was desired to the Greek event. In fact, the success that the markets have had over the Greek event is actually by ignoring it and not considering it a default and also by not having a hard facts on how much credit default swaps are actually involved in the Greek default. It's been obscured, as you would. And part of that obscuration would be to see that gold didn't call attention to something in a violent way. The easiness thereafter also comes from soundbite by Bernanke, 
who made the comment that the statistics on the U.S. economy were improving to a point where it may not be necessary to use QE3. That is really what the gold markets and currency markets have been uh, circulating around. I would say that the most important event that's had an impact on price was the statement from the Fed chairman concerning possibly not requiring further quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is easily defined as simply printing paper money. Which is the driver of the price of gold going up, as we've seen recently. Is that correct? Very much so. And it's also been the driver of of containing the advances in the U.S. dollar. It's been in the driver of the general equities market as well. Do you think we're going to get through this year without some sort of quiet quantitative easing? Well, I don't really think so because we know it already exists. Uh, the Fed did dollar swaps to be able to fund the intervention uh, that took place to keep the euro banks from having to recognize on their balance sheets the amount of the loss they took, not only the Greek bonds, but on other sovereign debt, which has been lower. Knowing that that exists, it's sort of double talk, but in terms of using QE3 as a propaganda point, if you will, towards what is the positive effect of it, basically liquidity floats every boat. It floats the boat of general equities, it floats the boat of gold. That's a uh, quote by uh, Eric de Grot, which is one that I, I think really defines what's taking place. The presence of or lack of quantitative easing will have a definitive effect on the gold price, the dollar price, and uh, general equities. So that was a PR move to boost the dollar and to suppress gold. In, in the environment of a Greek default, yes, that is exactly what it was. So the Greek default was used to purvey that message. No, the message that was given to the markets was to prepare the markets so that when the Greek default took place, the markets were prepped not to react violently to it, but to be focused on something else. Well, what can we see before the summer with regard to gold? That's what the market is trying to battle out right now. There are multiple levels of very significant support, which would bring on an early rise in the price. Those are being tested, and they are right within the range of where we've been trading in the last few days. What you're trying to determine now is whether or not the major move in gold comes out of the summer or right here. I tend to think that it's probably so significant when it comes that it will even affect the markets in front of it as well as behind it, meaning that if what I suspect will happen does in fact happen, then there is no significant downside to the gold price right now. So gold bugs should relax and accumulate. In terms of predicting where the price is to go, there have been some dollar developments which are going to be very important as we move into the summer. What's your prediction for the price of gold? I think the real range as we celebrate Christmas and go out will be seen to have been 1700 to 2111 The degree of movement away from the dollar as a settlement mechanism, which we've discussed before but is becoming ever more clear, will determine how high gold goes. I think if you really want to look at what the predictor is, watch the action of the dollar in terms of its inability to trade through the 80 to 82 level on the antiquated uh, USDX index. Now you've referenced the threat of using the Swiss system against India for buying Iranian oil. Well, the SWIFT system, as you know, is really, it's a bank wire system. It's a modern way in which funds are transferred into and out of your bank account, business bank account, sovereign bank account. such an item of utilization that uh, if you were not on a SWIFT system, you might as well not be a bank. You know, the idea of the Fed clearing checks as being a primary method of interbank money transfers is antiquated and doesn't exist anymore. Money transfers are by wire. And that we have eliminated Iran from the SWIFT system. Uh, That's a very powerful act of economic war. We did threaten India that if they continued to buy oil as dictated by their own needs rather than follow the dictates of sanctions, 
that they too might face being cut out of the SWIFT system. There are ramifications to that. You've got to understand that if you had to pick out one economic act, which would be an act of war, you would definitely pick out the SWIFT system as that tool. That's actually what got you the names and addresses of foreign accounts back to uh, the U.S. and other countries' internal revenue services. Was the threat to take out individuals Swiss banks from the SWIFT system, which was a threat to take out individual international banks from their function and ability to perform as banks themselves. Iran is out, India is now threatened, and it's a question of whether this is going to elevate other currency mechanism settlements and, in fact, gold. Dollar-wise, it will tend to create alternative currency blocks. For instance, although it is not directly related to this, when the Swiss became so excited about the appreciation in the Swiss franc, rather than saying we don't want the Swiss franc to go above dollar so-and-so, the uh, Swiss National Bank said we don't want it to go above euro, a given euro point. In a sense, that at that point, the uh, dollar as the major comparative currency for intervention with the Swiss franc turned to the euro. And what we're doing is we're, we're creating a yuan, a euro, and a dollar block. And what that does is those two alternative blocks are alternative currency settlement mechanisms, meaning that the dollar is a reserve currency, but by default, not now by choice. And other extremely powerful economic areas are making decisions to settle their currencies in their trade relationships, not with the U.S. dollar. And if the Swiss SWIFT system is continued to be used as a weapon, I think it's going to have a very significant impact on initiatives to start other and competing bank wire systems that cannot as easily be motivated by U.S. and British interests. So all of that means less use for the dollar. That less use is not some modest something. That less use focuses on settlement of international contracts of a commercial nature of a sovereign nature, and really represents serendipitous demand that a currency receives as a reserve currency. In other words, I have to say it's economic. Sure, it's economic. But it's not produced by the fact that the economic statistics of the reserve currency country are strong and attractive, or its credit uh, position is any better than the credit position of the financial industries. Uh, in Europe and elsewhere. It really has to do with using currencies as a weapon. And not many people are focusing on this right now. But there's no question that the use of the SWIFT system, first to uh, identify supposed or suspected tax cheats using international banks, secondly and most recently to be used against Iran, putting Iran's banks in a practical sense out of business, and now to threaten India with the use of the SWIFT system as a weapon against India. And the next one coming, I would say, real soon is Japan, because Japan's major international oil companies have today renewed their negotiations for long-term contracts with Iran. So if we've threatened the SWIFT system against India, oh, we're going to threaten the SWIFT system against Japan. Eventually, the result of this is break it down into a three-block currency system, which means at least half of the use of uh, the U.S. dollar as a settlement mechanism is going to find itself being settled in other currencies. Now, that doesn't mean that the U.N. is going to become a reserve currency, but it can be adopted as such. It can become a reserve currency by default. It doesn't mean that the euro is going to become a reserve currency, but could become it by default simply being adopted into settlement contracts. Now, this is something that most commentators don't see, haven't focused on, don't recognize the significance of, but it really is what has kept the dollar 
at 7,200 and above, 0.7200 on the USDX has been tested multiple times on the downside and succeeded. But that demand for the dollar that is a result of the settlement of international commercial and sovereign contracts is tremendous demand, which is sundering almost daily with developments that are taking place that definitely point at other systems for bank settlements or other currencies upon which to make commercial contracts. That is a very complex yet very important point that's taking place now. The dollar is finding less use as a reserve currency, as it's become one by default. If we start using economic weapons, we meeting the West, against Iran, against India, against Japan, against China, maybe Russia. You can be assured that the economic weapons are going to be used against us. War today doesn't have to be firing of a, of a gun. War today can easily be blocking a country out of its economic capacities. War today is shutting down banks more so than taking territory or advancing uh, in air power. You have to expect that the reaction to that will be to fight in kind. And if there was no weakness in Western currency, if there was no weakness in the U.S. economics, then using the economic power as a weapon might be defendable. But we have defined weaknesses, A, the strength of the dollar, but most importantly, the purchase of U.S. government treasuries. And we're depending on the allies of Iran heavily for these purchases. We're depending on China, Russia. We're depending on India. We depend on Japan to be buyers of our U.S. treasuries. If we're going to fight things in a most unusual way, if we're going to take the first initiative and go out there and put countries out of business and uh, threaten allies, and, uh, India's an ally, Japan's an ally, with the enormous power of the SWIFT system, the bank wire system, to put them equally out of business, retribution to us is going to be in our bond market, in our currency. And the currency's key demand as a reserve currency is not an investment demand, or if it was, why are they already selling less treasuries to international buyers? The important point of uh, the dollar strength is its settlement mechanism in somebody manufacturing shoes in uh, China and selling them to the U.S., they write it a dollar contract. Well, they're going to write it a yuan contract. They're going to write it a euro contract more than they're going to write it a dollar contract. And that demand is one of the reasons why the inexplicable is happening. The euro is up today, is it not? With all of the talk of Portugal next, with all of the talk of the dire circumstances that the euro is going to face, why is it trading 132? when it had a low of 119. The euro market is telling you something's happening in the dollar. The yuan market has been saying that for a long time. And gold will be heavily influenced by the action of the dollar. The United States has the strongest military, but it doesn't have the strongest economy. And it's fighting a war today that very few realize is being fought with nuclear economic weapons. If you are not in SWIFT, you're not in business as a bank. It's over. You can't make payments and receive payments. How in the world can you effectively remain a bank? So when you're forced out of the SWIFT system, that's as nuclear as it can get in an economic sense. We've done it to Iran. There are reasons. We've threatened India with it. Read through the article. And today, with Japan's major energy importer reopening its negotiations for long-term contracts on consumption of Iranian oil, hey, if we threaten India, Japan's going to get the same threat pretty soon. There will be ramifications. Ramifications will be in kind. And the in-kind ramification will be focused at the two major weaknesses the West has, debt and currency. And we've already seen that China is moved to the sell side on U.S. governments. And Russia and China will work very closely together on whatever they do in that area. We are exposed. And
And our exposure is in the debt market. Our exposure is in the dollar market. So by pulling out this weapon, we've actually pulled the trigger, although we have yet to fire the weapon. The trigger's been pulled. We have isolated Iran from the SWIFT system, and that fact put all Iranian banks out of business. The mushroom cloud of economics is on the horizon. It happened. It's there. It's done. And now we threatened India with this. Then we're the lunatics in the asylum, Jim. I don't think it's the wisest decision that's ever been made. I think it's a decision made on the basis that we are so powerful, no one dare take retribution in the same way. Well, that's how we collapsed the Soviet Empire. They were powerful militarily, and they had no economy. Well, we have two very weak points that are going to be attacked thanks to the use of the SWIFT system as a nuclear economic weapon. If a decision was up to me, I would have used the SWIFT system as a deterrent. I would have threatened, but I never would have used it. Where does the gold market fit in with all of this? The gold market will decide its timing very, very soon. Gold market has to remain above 1600 I mean, it can dip underneath down to 1575 let's say, but it's got to come quickly back. So functionally, it really has to remain over 1600 Otherwise, we've got a vacation until the summer. And when it comes on in the summer, it's going to be a heck of an event. It's going to be just what I've talked about, the retribution to the means of economic warfare we have initiated. That's going to take the dollar under 7200 and gold above 1918. Well, this has been another astounding interview, Jim. You've uncovered some potentially fatal news for the U.S. vis-a-vis this nuclear economic weapon we've launched, with the ultimate victim being the U.S. dollar and our own economy. Thanks for joining me today. I look forward to our follow-up dialogue next week. It's important stuff. It's social, it's economic, it's political. It's important to me, you, and our listeners. If people will just have this thought in their mind, they're going to see these articles popping up like mad to confirm this every day. And, of course, you post all of your thoughts and references on jsmindset.com. But when I do do an interview, I let the interview speak for me. You know, this message goes out uh, through Ellis Martin, and uh, in the following days there will be plenty to back it up on JS Mindset. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time today. Anything. Bye-bye now. Jim Sinclair is the editor of jsmindset.com and the president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. I'm Ellis Martin, today reporting from the PDAC, the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. It's the largest mining and resource convention in the world. There's 40,000 people at least attending. I'm in Toronto with the president of Cream Minerals. Cream Minerals trades on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and in the U.S. on the -the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, thanks for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report. My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you. What's come up with regard to your Nuevo Millennio project? We issued a news release, and in that news release, there were four drill holes from Ansibocus North, which is a potential open pit target on the uh, floor of the caldera. Of the four holes, the hole 9 missed the zone, which happens in exploration drilling. However, holes 10, 11, and 12 did hit the zone. All of the holes returned good values, and the best value was 68 grams per ton silver and 0.4 grams per ton gold over an intercept of 22 meters. Contained within that intercept and also contained with the intercept on the other two drill holes, 11 and 12, were higher grade intercepts of roughly 2 meters running 150 grams per ton silver and roughly 0.7 grams to 0.8 grams per ton gold. So overall, really quite good results. I'm very happy with them. When you take those within the context of a uh, open pit potential, it becomes really very interesting. Well, you've got high grades at surface, high grades of silver at surface, higher than the last time we spoke, most definitely increasing the resource. When are we going to be able to report the resource? When are those figures coming out? By the end of the first quarter. 
we expect that the resource will take a significant portion of the current inferred, move it into indicated, and we also expect that we'll be adding additional ounces to the current resource. Will this specifically define the company as an open pit resource project? I think it's a little bit too early to, to say that it's going to be strictly an open pit project. You know, we do have very good grades in the quartz veins and the quartz stockworks contained in the eastern wall of the caldera. The prime determinant will be total ounces contained in the east wall of the caldera. Are there sufficient ounces there? And are the locations of the quartz veins with respect to each other amenable to underground mining? If that works out, then yes, we could have an underground uh, mining operation. Most certainly, at this stage, it looks like we will have open pit operations on the floor of the caldera. In addition to growing the resource, your market cap expands naturally due to the growing price of silver. That's correct. I mean, currently our market cap is roughly $35, $37 million. This stock is trading approximately $0.27, cents Canadian. There are 153 million shares out, so let's assume that silver rallies strongly, the share price rallies strongly, hits a dollar, then our market cap is $153 million. So that should hypothetically, directly affect the share price of your company as well. Any junior exploration company which has got a, an in-situ resource and which is working on developing or expanding that in-situ resource can be viewed as a, um, as a long-term call on the price of silver. So as the price of silver goes up, the price of the silver in the ground or the value of the silver in the ground is going to go up. So therefore, the net present value on a fully diluted basis is going to go up. Therefore, the share price sooner or later is going to have to respond to the increase in the net present value of the underlying the share price. In other words, it's a fancy way of saying that if the price of silver goes up, the value of the silver in the ground goes up, and sooner or later the value of the share price has to go up to reflect the increase of the value of the uh, silver in the ground. How do you see 2012 playing out? For 2012, we have the new resource estimate pending uh, by the end of March of this year. Once we have that in hand, then we'll be able to finish laying out our drill program for 2012, and then we'll begin a, a drill program. Initially, it will be 10,000 meters. More than likely, we'll add an, an additional 10,000 meters to the drill program for a total of 20,000 meters in 2012. The big question is, where do you focus uh, those meters? And at this point, I think that we will probably put more focus drilling off potential open pit targets on the floor of the caldera than we will in uh, trying to drill off additional quartz veins in the uh, in the east wall of the caldera. Well, the open pit means that it's actually going to be a lot cheaper to produce an ounce of silver and uh, additionally create that sort of value for your shareholders. That's correct. It's going to be much cheaper to produce an ounce of silver. It's also going to be much easier to produce an ounce of gold. Typically in the open pit areas, we're seeing about 0.4 to 0.7 grams per ton gold, which is a nice credit to have because generally it will pay for all your mining and milling costs. In addition, if you're looking at an open pit operation, your capital investment is going to be dramatically lower than if you're looking at, a, at an underground mining operation, simply because you're spared the expense of drilling the tunnels, the drifts, the adits, etc. That can be incredibly expensive. And of course, there's plenty of infrastructure in Nayarit State, Mexico. This is not virgin territory at all for mining. No, it's not. We're within, say, 14 kilometers from the airport, 14 kilometers from power. We're roughly 14 kilometers from water. There's a railway that is, I'd say, 8 kilometers from the entrance to the property, and we're 27 kilometers by road from Topeka, the capital of Nayarit State. So with respect to proximity and infrastructure, it's very favorable for the uh, development of the project because the capital investment required, or the infrastructure capital investment required, is actually going to be quite low compared to 
to some other projects I've seen. You never name names, but I can think of one project in South America which is going to require almost 200-kilometer-long pipeline to move the concentrate. I mean, that's going to be incredibly expensive. Now, the project economics will support it, but nonetheless, you're talking about huge amounts of money to do that sort of thing. In our case, because we're within 14K of good quality infrastructure, we won't face uh, investments of, of anywhere near that scale. Who are some of the analysts that have covered you lately? Starting with Northern Securities, Matthew Zalestra. He has a speculative buy rating on the stock with a one-year target of $0.47. Cents. Uh, he issued his initial coverage in late December of 2011. Mike Bandrowski, mining analyst with Clara Securities, is currently issuing morning notes. Brian Zitzo with Byron Securities has a speculative buy. He currently doesn't have a, uh, a one-year price target. However, he has said that in subsequent research publications, he will have a, uh, a one-year price target. And most recently, Dundee Securities included cream in their summary of junior silver exploration companies uh, for 2012. So effectively, we've got four companies covering us in one form or another. And these are primarily before the recent data that you've been uncovering in the ground? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. The first three analysts, Matthew Zalestra, Mike Bendrowski, and Brian Zietzel, have all done site visits. The coverage from Dundee is not as in-depth because the, the analyst hasn't done a site visit. However, we hope to get the, uh, the analyst down to the, down to the project in April. What's the most exciting thing about your company? Yeah, I think the most exciting thing about the company is just the, the potential to grow the size of the resource and grow it significantly. We are sitting in a collapsed caldera. We are contained within the caldera as an epithermal system. Epithermal systems can be very rewarding from the viewpoint of grade and tonnage. We're seeing more and more open pit potential on the floor of the caldera which from the viewpoint of advancing to production, well, they can be advanced to production relatively quickly and relatively inexpensively, which means that the payoff for current investors and and potential investors could be significant. Michael O'Connor, president of Cream Minerals, trading on the Venture Exchange under the symbol CMA.V and the -the over-the-counter bulletin board as CRMXF. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you, Ellis. It's my pleasure. This is Ellis Mart reporting from the PDAC, the Prospectors Development Association of Canada in Toronto, Canada, for the Ellis Mart Report. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartreport.com. That's ellismartreport.com. Scott Drever is the president, the CEO of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SBL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Scott, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Do you find when you come out to these conferences all over North America that you get a chance to tell your story to new potential investors and meet with the shareholders and update them in person? What's the value in that for you? It's just that we have been doing a lot of roadshows and telling the story of Silvercrest and its progress with respect to its cash flow and its exploration program. And what that does is uh, make people familiar with the story. There's a lot of people uh, across North America that aren't familiar with Silvercrest, and we're just trying to get as many people looking at the story as we possibly can because we think it's a great story in the silver space. We consider there's a lot of upside potential to it. Well, it seems like you've either been very successful at talking about your company or the results that you're finding in Mexico and Sonora State are outstanding with respect to your La Jolla and your Santa Elena properties. Yes, I think people are, are starting to realize that the combination of things that we have in this company make it a very, very interesting story. The Santa Elena has reached a steady state of production. 
We've got a uh, two-year program there to double the current production. And uh, La Jolla is turning out some really, really exciting uh, results on the on the exploration work that we've done so far. I believe you're one of those companies where the risk is fairly minimal. That's certainly true. Santa Elena, we went to commercial production last year. So all the resource risk, the financing risk, permitting risk, all of those things that you run into in, in mining operations and bringing them on stream have been put behind us. And with a heap leach open pit operation like we have, one of the risks are are generally the last one to be cleared is the recoveries on the metals that you're putting on the heaps. And we're seeing recoveries track very closely the uh, metallurgical work that we did to determine what the recoveries would be. Our operations are running nicely. We're putting more through the mill than we had expected uh, initially. And so the goal just keeps coming out at the end of the tube. Is it a matter of a natural flow of understating and overperforming? Well, we like to do that. We like to be able to look back and say, well, we said we were going to do that, and we've done it. So, yeah, we tend to understate a little bit and and hopefully overperform. You're defining the resource at La Jolla, and yet you're continuing to expand the resource at your production site at Santa Elena. That must be contributing to the the rise in the share price. Certainly Santa Elena and the ability to uh, double the production in the next short while is adding to that value that you see in the share price. We haven't cut off that particular deposit. We're open pitting it at the moment. We do know that there's a considerable resource below the open pit, and we have never cut it off a long strike or to depth. So our expansion program, in part, includes an underground decline that will examine what we know about the resource under the pit, but also extend it into the area where there's been no exploration work. Tell us about the potential size of the polymetallic resource at the color Adito target at La Jolla? Yeah, we have several targets at La Jolla. The one that we focused on, obviously, is the main mineralized trend where we announced a resource recently of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent. There are a couple of adjacent targets to that main mineralized trend, one of which is the Colorado Dito. And we announced the results of some historical drilling that we were able to uh, confirm. We see there a uh, tungsten molly gold-silver system that has some sizable dimensions, if you can look at the, the historical data, and we have a number of holes planned for that. But generally, the container size there, I think, is about 500 meters by 200 meters wide by a couple of hundred meters depth. There's a lot of room for a large potential open pit deposit, but obviously we have a lot of work to determine how much of that container size has uh, the appropriate mineralization. So you really can't speculate about how that's defined at this moment. You can just say that you're looking. That's exactly correct. We have an 80-hole program going on at the moment for La Jolla, and I think there's 8 or 10 slated for that particular deposit. And at the end of that series, we'll have a much better idea of what it means and how big it might be. Is that 80 holes for 2012? Uh, Yes. Uh, We hope to have that finished probably by June. Uh, with the view to doing a resource update before the end of the year. How are you financing all all this drilling? We have $30 million in cash in the Treasury. We're well positioned there. Also, Santa Elena is uh, providing about 2 to $2.5 million a month in cash flow. So from cash flow and cash in the bank, we're well positioned to finance both our expansion plans and our exploration activity. You're well on the way to predicted ratings by some of the research analysts that have been following you. Yeah, we've made good progress towards those targets. I think Canaccord's analyst has put a $5.75 as a target price for us. Jennings Capital out of Toronto has a target price of $5.25. And Dundee Capital just initiated 
their coverage on us last week and uh, have put a buy signal on it but haven't given us a target number yet. So these are all recent updates, if I recall. That's true, yeah. We had a, um, a mine tour and a site tour a couple of weeks ago, and those analysts were on those trips. You know, they're talking from firsthand viewing of our work and, and what we're doing, and, uh, you know, they make their own judgments. Well, that's up about a dollar, dollar and a half or so since we last spoke at the end of January. We've been doing some extra legwork in terms of getting the story out, and I think we're starting to see the traction uh, grab hold on the, the story, and people are looking at the value that's here now and the value they see coming down the road. It's created that kind of interest, and we're trading good volumes. We're doing probably four or 500,000 shares a day, which gives everybody good liquidity. You're still a new story to many in the U.S.? We've started to focus on that because obviously the the market there, particularly for silver companies, is much, much greater than uh, what it would be in Canada. So we've redirected some of our investor awareness program to the U.S. We've been doing road shows in eastern U.S., in the Midwest, and also on the West Coast. There again, I think it's people starting to be aware of that story. We're also looking at the possibility of moving to a, a more senior exchange both in Canada and the U.S. What are you most excited about Silvercrest during the next 12 to 18 months? Obviously, the operations are important. It'll help us to build our cash flow, and the uh, expansion plan that'll help us to to double our production are are very important things. And those are good, stable things that every company needs. The excitement, I think, is going to turn around the La Jolla project because our first indications on that is that it has the potential to be a huge deposit and uh, can be a significant game changer for Silvercrest. Bigger than Santa Elena? Absolutely. Uh, I think if you look at the numbers at La Jolla of 102 million ounces of silver equivalent, it's probably bigger at this moment than what Santa Elena is, although we still have the expansion plan to determine what uh, Santa Elena's ultimate size will be. What does that mean for a company like yours potentially four or five years down the road? What's your long-term vision for Silvercrest? We're always trying to grow in some fashion, whether it's internally through the expansion plans at Santa Elena, for example. We look at other projects that could be brought on relatively quickly. It's a little early to tell at La Jolla just yet, but there's a whole range of possibilities there in terms of production. You could do a production unit of three to 4,000 tons a day because there's some very high-grade areas in that deposit itself, but it could also be forty or 50,000 tons a day because the indications are that there will be tonnage and grade to support that kind of production. And what's the average cost per ounce as it stands today? Our cost per ounce at uh, Santa Elena is about $8. It depends which quarter you pick, but about $8 per ounce of silver equivalent. How are you feeling about the price of silver heading up to possibly $60 an ounce by the end of the year? I think I'm on the record someplace of having said that uh, I expect to see it at least touch $60 this year. I've been speaking with Scott Drever, the president and CEO of Silvercrest Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX is STVZ. Scott, thank you very much for joining me today on the Ellis Martin Report.
My pleasure, Ellis. Thank you very much. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's Tanzanian TanzanianRoyalty.com. I'm in my hometown of Los Angeles, California with Dr. Don Robinson, the president, the CEO of East Main Resources, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol ER. Don, it's good to have you back here on the Ellis Martin Report. Alice, uh, nice to see you again, and thanks for uh, speaking with us. In the interest of full disclosure, I must disclose that I'm a shareholder of a cheerful shareholder of East Main Resources. Don, what's changed in the last year and a half, two years since you've been on the program? Right now, I think just to start with is our 2011 milestones. Last year, last spring, we updated the resource and demonstrated that our deposit was well in excess of a million ounces. There was a 62% increase in the deposit at Eau Claire, which is our Clearwater Project Eau Claire deposit. Most importantly is that the resource just wasn't a report on metal content, etc. The report was how it could be mined. And stunningly is that we found that the top part of the deposit could be extracted by a pit. And why this is important is that it opens up the gateways in terms of throughput and amount of gold you could get out of the ground at low cost and a a higher throughput. More importantly on top is that the grade of the open pit is three to five times higher than all of the undeveloped projects out there in the Canadian Shield. That really is the game changer. And as we were demonstrating in our presentation that we just had about a half an hour ago, that we are in the discovery business, and the way we make an impact on the project is that you make the project larger. And in the last 18 months, we have made a significant change in the footprint of the deposit, and it's clear that the open pit portion of that deposit extends west of what we thought was the limit of that deposit and hence it's much bigger going forward and this is what we call the 850 zone. Multiple analysts are covering the project and covering the company and in particular Macquarie has us as their top explorer pick in the country which we're quite proud of. In the last 12 months we were able to eliminate the royalty that was on the project held by the Quebec government so we now own the flagship royalty free. This is fantastic for our stockholders And the final element is the ability to keep the treasury replenished at a premium. Last year we were able to raise $11.5 million, a 70% premium to the stock, which doubled the treasury for a 5% dilution. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're operating in Quebec province. And that's exactly it. We have an unfair advantage. Where we're working in James Bay, Quebec, there were no operating mines. Now there are five gold deposits, one giant gold deposit that's owned by Gold Corp. We own the next two, and our flagship now is north of a million ounces and growing with expiration. And Gold Corp is your largest shareholder, aren't they? And that's the interesting point. We have a joint venture with them on a piece of the mine property, as well as they are the largest stockholder. And so the interesting point is that I think they're happy to see us grow our project at Eau Claire and grow the size of the project. They're making an investment of $1.4 billion 
to build the Eleanor Project. So they've made a considerable investment in time, energy, and money into our district. A portion of your assets, you have, uh, I think, almost 2,500 grams per ton of gold. Would you elaborate on that, please? Because I still find that an unbelievable figure. What really uh, separates us from the pack is grade. These are very high-grade vein systems that come to surface. Our whole 98, there was an interval that came back at 2,580 grams gold. The interval amortized over a 55-meter width came back at 24 grams. The surface grade of the top of our deposit is 23 and a half grams, translation 0.7 ounces. Translation again, it's a thousand dollar rock per ton. In the drilling that we've done and the trenching that we've done last year, we have found high grade material 500 meters or five football fields away that is in the sub kilo range within these wider envelopes. And that's been the nature of the deposit is that there is high grade, it's a fine gold flower that has spectacular metallurgy, easy milling, and you recover it with gravity. Now, you've explained the geology to be similar to the Timmins camp, which is sort of at the end of its run compared to the Clearwater area. Would you elaborate on that, please? The reason we are in this district in the first place is that it's underlain by the same belts of volcanic rocks as Timmins, Valdor, Red Lake, etc. The difference was there wasn't any major mines that had been discovered. But it meant that at first we had to get on an airplane, fly 400 kilometers and land on a lake, set your tent up and start from scratch. The advantage is that we were able to acquire well over a thousand square kilometers of the most prolific ground in the district. And we know that at least one of those strips contains a multi-million ounce gold deposit. And the second one, we have another discovery in the historical East Main Mine property. And right now, we're taking advantage of some technology. And if you go to our website, you can start seeing 3D models of what these deposits look like. And the fact is that the pre and post drilling to show you, oh, I get it. I can see that thing is bigger. And I can see there's some trends in here that we should be testing. And after 15 minutes with a little explanation, I think... The common investor or the everyday investor sees what we can see, is that there's a lot of upside. Well, we've been covering your company on and off for about 10 years now, and I have to tell you, I have not seen the type of resource, the type of excitement that I'm seeing now. You say that you're being called perhaps the biggest story in Canada. I'm seeing that now, and yet we have a stock that's uh, at $1.25, a a very decent share price in quote-unquote this market, but yet uh, this could be the story that's on the lips of everybody down the road. Our job is to get right center square on the radar screen, and the way you do that is demonstrate that you have a project that's in the upper echelon comparable to the best of the best in the world. We now have a deposit that's north of a million ounces. Well, there's 296 in the world, of which one-third of them come from North America, and probably half of those will never be mined for various reasons of logistics, etc. We've got a nice project here that is right beside a road and is right near power, And I think in the last two years, we're demonstrating it's bigger than we knew. What's the rare metal story to East Main? This is something you uncovered today for us. Enclosed in the deposit, there are other byproducts. Not just gold, but principally there's a lot of tellurium present. And the folks that are making solar panels and the folks that are making microprocessors need this element in order to build their products. Just so happens is that there's a lot of it present in Clearwater, and it's fairly metallurgically simple to get it out. 
So we use it for science in that it's a fingerprint of the deposit, but in the future it will benefit the economics of the project in that it will reduce the cost of producing an ounce of gold because you get paid for the byproduct. Let's talk about the share structure before we wrap up. You've had very little dilution over the years. Given that we've been here for 16 years on the Toronto Stock Exchange, our share structure is still less than 100 million shares issued. We don't have any overhang in terms of warrants. We've been able to keep the treasury full, and that's just keep your stick on the ice. Keep at it. Keep a steady program going forward. Don, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Ellis. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, the president and CEO of East Main Resources. The website is eastmain.com. The symbol on the Toronto Stock Exchange is ER. That's ER.to. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. If you'd like to hear any of these audio segments again, find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. You'll also be able to review a great deal of news and information on a variety of topics that Ellis Martin feels is important for you to see. Wow, that's ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths and rare metals, as well as gold and copper, in New South Wales, Australia. The company is called Alkane Resources. It trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Ian, welcome back to the program. It's nice to have you on Skype today. Oh, hi, Alice. Yes, it's nice to give it a go and then sort of join the 21st century. According to what I'm seeing, you are in the process of attempting to raise $107 million in funds now. I thought $106 million was a big figure, but you're going for the whole 107 Would you mind explaining what you need the money for? It's actually broken up into three different components. Now, perhaps I should explain that first. Four existing shareholders... It's on a one for ten basis. So if you own ten shares initially now, you'll get one new share and at a dollar ten. We've also done a placement of about 40 million shares, uh, which is at our capacity about 15% of the issued capital you can place at any one time. So that's a 40 million placement. And because the demand was so strong, I mean, really, we were very surprised just how strong that demand was. We've actually done another 30 million placement, but that's subject to shareholder approval. So that's something that now won't take place until about the the 16th of April. So that raises us overall about $107 million. The key component of that, about $70 million is allocated to the development of our Tomingly Gold project. The project is ready to go, to ready to start construct, but we just need approval from the state government, but uh, we're hoping to get that in the next month. So with this funding in place, the project now basically proceeds to, to construction and then to development. About $20 million we've allocated to the Dubbo Zirconia project. That's our large zirconium niobium rare earth project. And not that I think we'll spend that in the next 12 months, but it's really to make sure that everything we need to do over the next 12 months gets us to a point where this time next year we're ready to go for that project. And really that means the final stages of the process development work, uh, putting a rare earth MOU in place for offtake, getting all the funding, financing ready for the project, getting all the environmentals approval. So there's a lot to do in this 12 months, but we by the end of March next year, we really want to be in a position where we can press the button to go. So that's the major application of those funds. 
Now, are you going to have to go back to the market for more money, let's say, in a year with respect to Dubbo? Yes, we think so. I mean, really, it depends how we end up funding the project. And, you know, we've said a few times now that we think there are a number of options to funding the project. I mean, we still are talking about a $900 million Australian dollar project. One of the options we've got is to do a small strategic sell-down on the project, maybe 10%, and we believe we could do that at multiples to the NPV value. So that's potential $250 million type capital raising out of that sell down and interestingly in the last two years what I'll loosely describe as government agencies and the the most well-known government agencies to us Japanese Korean and European agencies and these governments have set out to secure supply of strategic metals I think that the events that have taken place in China in the last few years have frightened many of them into the sense they've got to find non-Chinese supply. And these government agencies have been given the brief by their governments to go out and secure supplies for their country. And to do that, they're prepared to provide some loan funds, uh, project loan funds, at very, very interesting interest rates. So we can see another... 200, 250 million coming from that source, leaving us another 400 million to, to find. And we think that will just be broken up between normal project debt finance and the equity market. And again, our target has been to try and keep that equity component below $200 million. So we don't really want to go out to the market and really blow the capital of the company out. We want to try and keep the shareholding as tight as possible so that when we get into production on Dubbo in, in three years' time, that the, the project then will generate very substantial returns and see that capital appreciation in the share price. So that's a long way of answering your question. Yes, we probably will have to go to the market, but only at that point where we have, we think, the bulk of the financing for the Dubbo-Zaconia project in place. But you're having no trouble raising this amount of money in Australia for the projects you have at hand. I think for any junior mining company in the U.S., that's an astounding figure to try and raise it in the U.S., or Canada, but for you, it's necessary, and it's for your gold project, which should be generating about $30 million a year. That's right. Again, we did the road show back in the end of January, early February, into London, New York, and Toronto, and then we followed up here in Australia in the two big financial centres of, of Sydney and Melbourne. I came away from that really pleasantly surprised just how much interest there was. I expected the markets, certainly in London, and then maybe to a lesser extent in New York, to be still very wary, very concerned about the European debt crisis situation, but it was almost the opposite. Certainly in London, there was a remarkable buoyancy. Most of the funds thought that uh, the market had turned, that said there was a lot of money around. So in fact, it was actually quite simple, quite easy for us to raise the money than a mixture of different centres where it came from. And certainly in Australia, there was a big, strong interest in what we we're doing. And I think that was pleasing that we've got the message across you know we really have got the message across of to what alkane's all about where it's going to go over the next five years the bread and butter business of the gold operation and then the real big upside coming out of the dubbo zirconia project it actually became quite easy to market it and at one stage in the two-day raising program we were looking at the placements we probably had a two-to-one offer in. So in other words, the placements were looking to raise about $70 million. We probably had an offer something like $140 million at that stage, and I think we could have got a lot more. So that was, again, very pleasing, and then great for us to, to say, well, yeah, the market has, has finally recognised uh, what Alcane's got and what the enormous upside that it's got. 
Will any of these funds go into the Dubbo project from uh, Tomlingley, the gold project? Only in the sense of this is the first phase of getting us through this year. The actual operating cash flows coming out of Tomlingley to a lesser extent. There will be cash flow coming out. Well, it will depend on where we are with Tom and If Tom and hits its straps very quickly and generates cash flow quickly, certainly that will also save us from going back to the market. But we sort of see Tom and Lee more as providing us that cash flow, that accumulating funds that, again, stops us from going to the market in the future after Dubbo. You have many shareholders here in the U.S., of course. You trade on the OTC QX. Those folks get it as far as it being uh, relatively, it's not risk-free, but the amount of risk is, let's say, less than other junior companies in the rare earth, rare metal space that don't have three or four offtake agreements in the offing like you do. I think, again, that's where the message has got across in the last uh, six months at least, and that Balcone is a very advanced project. I mean, it's not something we've started in the last three or four years. We've been working on this project for 12 years or 13 years. We originally acquired it about 20 plus years ago so it's it's been around and we've done all the hard work you know that's been really getting the process right building a demonstration plant getting product off that demonstration plant in enough quantities to be able to give to end users off lab scale tests certainly you can get 10 grams 100 grams of material but you really have to be able to give these end users tens of kilos of material for them to process and to check so the fact that we've been up we've done that we are at that last stage we're leading up to sort of development i think that does differentiate us quite considerably from a lot of the other companies in the business. One of the most interesting things about your company, the most compelling item about Alkane, and we've discussed this, is essentially, I'll just reduce it to this statement, you've become a lifeline for the economies of Japan and South Korea and many Western European countries. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. I must admit, I hadn't thought of that. But it, it certainly, I mean, we wouldn't be able to meet all the demand of those countries. But in some of the critical areas like the heavier earth, you know, even zirconium, we are, and we use the words, a strategic alternative option. That we, you know, we certainly are a distinctive option from China, and we believe we can supply into the market reasonably strong way for a long period of time. You know, we often talk, you know, jokingly talk about the project having a 100-year life but in reality, that's what it is. The resource is big enough to sustain that sort of operation. So that does give a strategic significance. That's 100 years. I mean, you can joke about it all you want, and you expect to be generating half a billion dollars a year, don't you? That's right. The cash flow out of that should approach $300 million a year. So it's a very good project. And like most analysis of mining projects, they tend to put a 20-year financial model on it. Uh, that 20-year financial model still generates uh, some very interesting numbers. You end up with a, a $6 billion cash flow over that 20-year period, a, a 30% return on investment. So it's a, it's a good project. It's a very robust project. You know, people often ask us what happens if the... If the metal prices collapse, well, it would take a very significant fall in all the metal prices to get back to a point where we were, say, even just a break-even. And that's, again, one of the advantages of the project is the distribution. I mean, we get revenue from the zirconium, from the niobium, from all the rare earths. It gives us a bit of flexibility to withstand market fluctuations, you know, as we've seen in the last uh, six months with the rare earth industry. There's been some you know, fairly major shifts in some of the rare earths. That really hasn't impacted on us. When you stand back and look at our economics, it really hasn't changed anything for us. The, the project is still a very viable and robust project. Well, it's not going to change your offtake at all. That's right. It's no impact at all. The offtake is still very important. Do you expect to pay dividends at some point? 
Yes, we do. We've publicly stated that that's our goal. Uh, a lot of mining companies, a lot of junior mining companies won't say that, but we certainly believe that's what we want to do. We think there'll be significant capital appreciation in the shares, but we also think that long-term we can become a, a good dividend player. It'll come building up from the gold, certainly from the rare metals and rare earths. And then some of the other exploration projects we've got have the ability over the next three or four years to progress into development projects as well. So we do see ourselves. And our major shareholders are there and are involved in Alcone because they see the revenue stream off dividends as very important. Well, Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for joining us today on the Ellis Martin Report. Uh, thanks, Ellis. Great to talk to you again. Alkane Resources trades on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. That's ANLKY. I've been speaking with the managing director and president of Alkane Resources, Ian Chalmers. You can listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, Ellis Martin Report.com. Join us next time for the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals pay us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, invest at your own risk. Get more of these powerful programs free on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.